0: Hi, and welcome to Trev Tech Talks, a podcast for entrepreneurs inspired by technology. Join me as we unpack how cloud computing is laying the foundation for the fourth industrial revolution. In this podcast, you'll gain insight into how cloud is being adopted across Africa. We'll also take a look at some of the most innovative products being developed using cloud. Hi, Mike, and welcome to Trev Tech Talks. It's an honor to have you here today. Uh, For the listeners, Mike Murphy is an industry veteran in the technology space and is um, currently an IT executive and has been an IT executive for the largest bank in Africa for for many, many years. Mike, would you like to just introduce yourself?
1: Well, thanks, Riven. Thanks for the the opportunity to have us chat to you. Um, so yeah, I've been with the Standard Bank Group for kind of 28 years, I think it is at the moment. Um, fortunately, all my time in IT, and you know, many opportunities afforded to me in the organisation. And I think working for a large bank, um, in particular, I guess in, in the financial services industry, one gets exposed to many facets of technology. And the, I mean, the most prevalent one for us at the moment is cloud. And you know, how do we contemplate cloud? What does our cloud journey look like? How do we do it? How long is it going to take? You know, etc. So yes, thank you. I look forward to the discussion.
0: So, I think the first question, Mike, is where did you start off?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, straight off the university, I actually, I joined Standard Bank, so this is my first job, and um, I started off as a business analyst in what was back in the days called a security service division. It's not security as in kind of trenches and kind of torches, it was securities in the context of banking, which is kind of stocks and shares and bonds, etc. It's now the, generally what people would call global custody, so I, I spent five years um, doing that and I joined IT proper in nineteen ninety six and back in the day when Standard Corporate and Merchant Bank was first formed and we moved into a you know a facility or an office in, in Summer Street in town. And I worked in CIB doing kind of many different things from kind of running infrastructure to, you know, running a Credit risk management project that we rolled out across the all the con- all the countries we were in at the time when we still had at the bank a fairly kind of large international operation. I was involved in what is now online share trading business in the the credit and market risk business as well, um, architecture integration, and I worked in CIB until two thousand seven. And when the opportunity was afforded to build a what was then called group technology infrastructure, so we had prior to that the different parts of the bank having their own infrastructure capabilities running their own networks and kind of almost their own data centers so we decided that you know there's there's nothing really differentiating as far as technology as far as banking is concerned when it comes to kind of infrastructure so why don't we create a kind of group or global technology infrastructure practice which would span the continent and our international operations so we started that in 2007 um, spent many years kind of building that Um, that evolved over time to incorporate additional parts of the IT organization, particularly kind of the service management function. And it became from GTI, went to Group Technology Operations, ran that for a few years. And I'm I'm going to get the dates wrong here, but roughly four or five years ago, I was offered the opportunity to kind of run the the software development practice for the group. Um, Spent about six months in that, um, only for a number of people to leave the organization in key positions. And we, we took advantage of the time of actually kind of creating then what is now the, the chief technology office, um, part of, the, part of the, um, the bank's IT operations. So I was a CTO for the group for, I think, roughly two and a half, maybe three years. Um, and, you know, CIOs changed. You know, Brendan Ehouse, who was a CIO at the time, retired. Alpheus Mangale joined us from MTN. And, you know, in discussions with Alpheus, he offered me an opportunity to become the CIO of the South African operations. And it took us a better part of 18 months to actually kind of I think put the model in place and decide you know what part of the group's practices and, and capabilities are actually exclusive to South Africa and how do we kind of divorce those from what is a, a kind of a, a large group function and South Africa as an operating entity in the IT context was put in place in November of last year um, and then as luck would have it another opportunity came around in January of this year to actually run um, a reliability engineering initiative across the group It's a program we call Always On, which is focused on improving the reliability, the resilience and the availability of our applications across the South African franchise and all the the countries in the African continent as well.
0: Wow, Mike, like coming from a youngster's Mm -hmm. perspective, like that's almost like the perfect role model for someone like me, looking at where you came from and sort of the opportunities that you were given and uh, that, that... diverse range of different roles that you that you played. I have so many questions that I don't think that will even span the entire podcast. But, you know, obviously now, you know, the, the chat um, that we're going to have is, is related to cloud. So so when did cloud get into your sphere or your view? So, I, I mean, I, I guess
1: cloud had been on the, on the radar for quite some time. But I mean, if, if you if you cast your mind back probably three or four years ago, um, I think it was, it was starting to get real tr- traction In the financial services industry, when you had a lot of really kind of prominent organizations moving financial services workload into the cloud. So that's when I I guess my interest or I guess the group's interest in a way got initially got peaked. Um, Unfortunately for us at the time, you know, there was no indication from any of the kind of hyperscalers that they had any intention of opening up, you know, data centers or kind of um, zones and regions in in South Africa. So one of the problems we were then faced with, well, we still had to deal with um, kind of data sovereignty. We still had to deal with data privacy issues, we still had to deal with localization concerns, so cloud seemed like a grand idea, and but we didn't really have the means or mechanisms to try to do something at scale. I mean, at that point, we had been consuming all a cloud services for quite some time, you know, whether it be kind of, you know, the, the Salesforce stuff that the bank has been using, and kind of similar examples, but we didn't really envisage or imagine anything on a large scale, simply because of the constraints that I've just mentioned. But that then kind of changed, I, I guess, roughly two, two and a half years ago, where, where both Microsoft and Amazon kind of made their intentions clear about opening up um, zones or regions in, in South Africa. And Microsoft was first for the party. You know, Amazon kind of followed shortly thereafter. And I think that's changed the, the game for us as an organization. So I think the, the intention now, and I guess the bank's intention as stated publicly, is to go into the public, into the public cloud on an all-in kind of basis. I mean, in all, in I mean, don't do interpret that as binary. I mean, there may always be workloads that we may, through conscious decision and choice, decide to keep on premises, but by and large, the default position is everything we have in our data centres should be going to the cloud. And I guess the reason for that is is, is manyfold, but probably two of the, the, the well three of the key reasons. So, firstly, we're of the view that once again, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about in, infrastructure being non-differentiating. As a bank, I think you know, you know, providing you know infrastructure as a service or platform as a service capabilities is something we've been doing for a long time, but it adds no real discernible business value. And is this really, you know, the the stuff for us to be focusing on? I guess the answer is no. So the cloud providers do a far better job at kind of providing that for us. And they provide levels of availability and reliability, foreign access, I think, of what most, if not all kind of organizations who aren't in IT could actually provide. So that's the one of the real reasons for going. The second is around security. And I think with the kind of the the shared um, responsibility model that you see with both um, Microsoft and Amazon, and similar with Google, a lot of the security-related issues that we worry about today, we don't need to worry about tomorrow, which makes makes or gives us the opportunity, I think, to be more laser-like in in kind of focusing on our security, knowing full well that you know the the parts of the stack that the cloud providers now take care of, they do. Once again, in a manner that's likely to be in excess of what it, or better than what it is we can provide. So those are two. Let's of the fundamental reasons for, for going to the cloud. But the most important one I think is around business agility, and the the, the service offerings that you find with both Amazon and Microsoft, um, and the rate at which these kind of offerings evolve, and the rate at which new offerings are brought on, is really, really a game changer for us. And to be able, as an organisation, to leverage that to contemplate going into new markets, into new businesses or just to kind of rapidly experiment and try different things is once again something we could, you know, even if we had all the money in the world, not really do anywhere near as effectively and efficiently as what the hyperscalers can do. So that to me is the key one. This is this is a business differentiator. And for as long as we see the cloud opportunity as a business differentiator and we go in with that in mind, then I think, you know, it'll be a different different place in, in the in the years to come.
0: So not just saving costs, you, you, here we're talking about new business models using cloud as yeah. an enabler.
1: I mean, so, so saving costs is often touted as kind of one of the reasons for going to cloud. And I think if you do it correctly, and if, if, you really, if you're really cost conscious and you really make sure that you design in the cloud different to the way you design on-premises and you take advantage of all the kind of capabilities such as you know, auto-scaling and et cetera that the cloud providers do provide you, you can be more cost-efficient particularly, I think, in your non-production environments, because most non-production environments today consume a lot of money to kind of think in a capital investment perspective. Often they lie dormant and fallow overnight, but you're still paying for them. They're still consuming electricity. You know, that, that cost is, is there. I mean, the opportunity to kind of turn things off and on when you need them in the cloud, I think offers a real opportunity to kind of, you know, reduce reduce costs. And in most organizations, I think the, the cost of the non-production environments are often the same as if not greater than the production environment. So I think that's where you can get cost optimization. It doesn't mean you won't get it in production. I think you can certainly get it in production using the same premise I've just outlined. It may Whether it's the same or more or less, I don't know. Because I think most production environments are generally speaking more tuned than the than, than non-production counterparts. Mm-hmm. But so the cost is there, but the cost is never the real reason to go to cloud. I think the cost saving is a beneficial, incidental thing that happens as you take your journey there. Having said that, If you're not cost conscious and if you don't really understand what it is you're consuming and what you should be consuming and how you should be designing and what you do design then i think you could be in for a very rude awakening you know in in a way every single developer in the organization in the context of cloud becomes a procurement officer Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know when when you're doing things internal to the organization a lot of the money is funny money and i don't think people necessarily have a close affinity to what it is they're building what it is they're designing and the cost implications of that in the in the cloud world that changes you now everything you turn on turns on green dollars
0: 100 percent, yeah so. mike you mentioned something very important uh, business value mm. so and you mentioned that uh, and you tie that uh, to the cloud journey now if you take you know obviously to to move whatever any organization in this day has on-prem into the cloud mm. that's going to take some time you're mm. talking about systems that were developed you know uh, maybe 10 20 years ago you know, then we talk about lifting, shifting that into the cloud. Now we bring in the factor of there's within the banking industry and many other industries as well. There's these new, uh, call them startups hmm. that, are, that are coming to the market and they're slowly eating up uh, parts of, of the larger banks. And they, they've got a greenfield implementation. They have cloud native architecture. So they're not lifting and shifting. They're built directly into the cloud. How does a, a bank... Or financial institution now accelerate their migration as well. At the same time, stay relevant with what the, those startups are doing. Mm-hmm.
1: So I think first of all, so in in the in this quarter, the in, this, in the medium term, so maybe the medium terms two to five years, it depends how one defines it. I think if if you aren't active in the cloud, if you aren't building all your new workload in the cloud, if you haven't moved critical parts of your application landscape into the cloud it's going to be very difficult to be to be competitive um for, for many reasons i mean we have legacy infrastructure we have an enormously complicated well, most banks have enormously complicated environments that are more difficult than one would like to change to evolve and kind of innovating and kind of rapid rapid development is is, is more often than not constrained when viewed in the context of you know on-premises versus the cloud and I think the migra- the migration needs to be purposeful. I don't think the migration can be incidental in the sense that, you know, every now and again you decide to move certain things. I think you need to have you need to set a goal. And I think the goal needs to be kind of articulated in terms of your, you know, your, your final objectives and the need to be dates associated with it. And you have to almost in the old way one would have kind of managed a large, complex project, you've got to be incredibly purposeful about what you're going to move, what moves needs together, and how you're going to do it. And without doing that, I think you're going to drift into the cloud. And I think, you know, if you're going to drift into the cloud, you're likely to kind of kind of drift into insignificance eventually. Mm-hmm. So you know, this is this is not a case of you know if we move, but when we move, and the when needs to be sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, so this this is a must-have. I think any, any large scale financial institution who's hoping to compete in a world that's becoming increasingly more competitive has to be moving to the moving to the cloud. It has to be there as soon as they can get there because your lunch will be eaten if you take your time. And before you know it, you get to that tipping point where when you realize that you're kind of non-competitive, you, there's almost not much you can do about it. Yeah. And I think that window of opportunity to remain competitive and to become as competitive, if not more competitive than kind of some of the startups, is now.
0: So basically, if I had to summarize what you're saying, basically, we need to get there very quickly. We need to get there safely and we need to, in, a, in an efficient manner. Yeah. So having said that, now we bring in the concept of SREs, and and how that factors in uh, into an organization that's currently on the on a cloud journey. So now you've migrated to some, let's say, large scaled applications that's running your bank into the, into the into the cloud, and now you've got the con- concept of SREs coming into play, and and how that. Uh, Maybe talks to maintaining and running some of those platforms. Yeah. You want to just yeah. um, talk about the. Yeah, so, SRE
1: is interesting. I mean, everybody talks around SRE as, as if it's a kind of a new thing. And, and in many ways, I mean, the term is certainly new. You know, kind of Google, I guess, first put the term into public use a, a few years back. And we, we've now associated kind of the concept of SRE with cloud. And I don't think that's wrong. It's because. Because that, you know, SRE was found in kind of the the, the cloud-native organizations. But I think reliability engineering as a practice, i just drop the word site for a second, is something that we should be doing and all organizations should be doing and should have been doing with their on-premises kind of application infrastructure for many, many years. So the tenants behind SRE, what it's about, remain valid whether you're on-premises or in the cloud. And I think that's really important. Um, I think it, you know, wh- whether it's more important in the cloud or not, I guess that's kind of a, a point one combat. I don't really have an opinion on that. But what, what we do know is that you need you <laughs> the, the minute you're in the public cloud, I mean, you need to be hyper aware of these things. I need mean, the, the reliability of your systems and the expectation from a customer perspective, I think, has changed markedly over the years. Um, th- this business of kind of banking hours being between nine and three, you know, and, and most things being available between nine and three, or, you know, with certain kind of channels being available 24 by seven, Is long gone. I think organizations, or customers at least, are expecting the level of service, the level of availability and reliability that they get from the likes of Google and from Amazon and and Facebook and the other companies from their their banks. And I I don't think banks are necessarily doing an atrocious job of kind of delivering that, but there is absolutely a lot of work that can be done, must be done, and to an extent is being done to improve that. um,
0: So, okay, having said that, now... I know there's, there's a lot of buzzwords that's been thrown around and DevOps is, is a very popular one. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about cloud, you know, what what is your thoughts on ensuring or making sure that within an organization, um, having the right pipelines to deliver your application should be a mandatory item?
1: Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me answer the question by starting with DevOps. I think, I think, and this is just my opinion, I mean, whether it's right or wrong, I guess that's open for debate, but I mean, DevOps at its, at its base level is actually cultural change. So it's not a technology thing, it's not a product thing, it's not a anything. It's, it's, at its essence, it's a culture change. And, and there's a culture change that I think talks a lot more about ownership and accountability and responsibility. So, you know, Werner Vogels from Amazon used the term, you build it, you run it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really important as well. So it talks at its essence, I think, to people taking real ownership and real pride in the stuff that they build. Knowing that what they when they finish building something, that's not the end of the journey. You build something, you are you are accountable for running that thing forever. Mm-hmm. You know it's not like you know you go and buy a family pet. You know the the, the responsibility doesn't end when the yeah. pet arrives in the house. Yeah. You know there's 10, 15, 20 years of ownership, of feeding, of training. Of you know that's the sort of stuff that we need to get in place. In the old days, when you had kind of a split between you know run, build, you know design, whatever kind of the, the construct was, or plan, build, plan, build, run was that too often or more often than not, developers literally kind of build the code, throw it over the wall to the operations guys, and they had to deal with all the noise. I mean, that makes no sense through so many kind of lenses. Firstly, how is it that someone who wasn't part of writing the code going to be better at kind of fixing it and improving it than the person who actually wrote it themselves? How do, How does ownership stay with a person who written it if they've just thrown it over the wall to someone else to kind of sit and maintain it with this so the model itself is completely broken i think we saw over many years in most organizations the implications of getting that model wrong um, the, the world has changed so i think many many, many companies i mean, the, the, the bank in, in our context included has moved away from kind of that divide to implementing the, the devops practices literally you build it you run it everyone on the feature team is responsible for designing the code, running it, maintaining it, optimizing it, securing it, et cetera. And I think that's important. And that that practice obviously needs to continue in the cloud, so there's, there's no difference between on-premises and the cloud. Deployment pipelines, once again, you know the, the, that's the stuff we should be doing. That's just good engineering practice. And you should be using that good engineering practice whether you're on-premises or in the cloud or you're in a hybrid model. Um, I think my view would be is that you should not be allowing any workloads to be migrated, either lift and shift or refactored or rewritten, into the cloud if you are not first putting those ci cd pipelines in place and in that context as well you know wrap infrastructures code under the under the umbrella of ci cd here for the second because it's simply just the right thing to do yeah and you know there, there is no rhyme or reason to go in the cloud and kind of try to mandrolic everything mm-hmm. it makes no sense so
0: yeah so as as all these organizations are moving to the cloud i think that there's a Let's just get it running and then we'll sort the rest out later yeah. and then it never gets, uh, never lands up getting done yeah. so what you're saying is you know just take the time now to to lay down that foundation then you know that not that you don't ever have to look back at it again but at least you know you've got yeah. something there that can protect you so
1: it's yeah you know, I, I agree because i mean if you the old mantra i mean if you don't have time to do it right we're not gonna have time to do it again exactly more, more often than not. You know, there's what's the other saying as well? You know, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary fix. Yeah. If if you, you do it right from the start, you will never regret doing it right from the start. You will always regret having taken the shortcut and having to live with the consequences of that shortcut. Because things happen, priorities change, focus changes, and more often than not, I think in the majority of cases, anything done on the premises, or we will get back to it at some other point. You never get back to it, and you live with the consequence of those decisions. 100
0: percent. Well there you go listeners so um, you you've heard it from the horse's mouth uh, get it right the first time. Mike the next thing i want to talk about is you know as we drill down now to, to once once uh, an organization is is public has a public uh, cloud platform they've migrating some apps to this they've got some sort of reliability engineering underway and they 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 are adhering to the to the correct engineering best practices. Now you look at the, the engineers that are part of this team. Now, mm-hmm. like myself, uh, an, an engineer, a cloud engineer within the space, you know, some of the some of the questions that I have for you is, you know, we're working in a in an area now where you, you're a software engineer, you're also a little bit of a cloud engineer, you're now doing a little bit of database work, a little bit of queuing systems in there, you're building some event-driven systems. You also have to do a little bit of security because, you know, whatever you do you have security underpins everything so now you know as a typical software engineer in the previous um setting you, you would write code and that's that's it you know yeah. you'd, you'd write some tests but now you're doing a lot more than that so the question that i'm trying to ask here is for for the youth that are that are up and coming in the space hmm. you've you've just out of varsity maybe you may joined a graduate program you maybe you know got your first job you may be a junior developer right so at the end, you want to get to a level where you are now able to fit in into one of these teams that are delivering the next digital bank or the or delivering the next big product to come out there. So, how does one, um, at the very very beginning stages of their career, start to shape all of these things together?
1: So, I'll stop by saying, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there's one definitive answer here. So, I'll express my opinion. Yeah. So I think all software all software engineers, or you know, infrastructure engineers for that matter become better engineers if they acquire adjacent skills. Because I think the minute you have adjacent skills, and adjacent skills maybe in this context, maybe it's a testing skill, maybe it's an analysis skill, maybe it's a sysadmin skill or a DBA skill, whatever the case is, when you have a better appreciation for those practices, then you have a better appreciation for what you do in the context of that and how what it is that you do impacts them. And I think that's really, really important as well. It also goes back to kind of a little bit of the culture stuff too. There's often talk in the market around kind of full stack engineers. Personally, I hate the term because I think it's just kind of you looking for a unicorn. I don't think anybody is necessarily going to have that same level of depth or experience in every tech part of the technology stack. But I think building adjacent skills is the first thing you should do. So my recommendation would be, I guess if I had to, you know, wind back the clock and come out of varsity and I joined a bank or I joined an organization as a software engineer, Um, I think I would spend time purposefully working in infrastructure, working in security, working in software development, but not only in kind of the new sexy stuff. You know, spending a little bit of time kind of acquiring skills in the old legacy environments, because there's a lot to learn from there. And I think, you know, the the, the more skills that you require, and this is not about being an expert in everything, I think it just makes you a a much more all-round person. And I think the, as consequently, I think the, the solutions that you develop or the software that you engineer is likely to be better and i said you know that that's what i would do i think people need to be purposeful about acquiring this you know you know serendipity can give you opportunities and you know maybe you you know coincidentally you just happen to kind of pick up some skills but i think you need to be fairly purposeful about doing it um i'm not don't conflate this or confuse this with you know mapping out a career path i'm not talking about yeah, career yeah, paths sure. here but rather just kind of getting as many skills as you possibly can the, the curiosity the interest I think because you learn from everything and I think yeah. that's you know, that's
0: really important. And of course staying up to date, continuous learning, reading. Okay, no. you know. A- ab-
1: absolutely. So. Um, you know, the idea that your le- learning kind of ends when you finish your degree is a terrible concept. I mean, if anything, your learning only begins once you finish your degree <laughs> you've actually into again. the workplace. <laughs> so I think continual learning or continuous learning is, is absolutely part and parcel of what it is what it takes to be a successful person. But a successful person in many respects, not just kind of engineering. Yeah, sure. So, so. Um And particularly, I guess, in, in our industry where the the rate of change is, is kind of so rapid. Yeah. I um, mean, if, if you rest on your laurels, you know, give it a couple of years and you're you you know you're on a path through relevance.
0: Exactly.
1: And I think that's important. And, and, it's, and, it's, and I think also kind of learning and acquiring in, or requiring skills in fields that are non-related. You know, there's, there's a lot that we as IT people can learn from the fine arts, there's a lot we can learn from the history, there's a lot we can learn from politics, there's a lot we can learn from the military, in fact. Mm-hmm. So you take a look at, I don't know, Agile. Yeah. You know, people think Agile was born in IT. Mm-hmm. I mean, the army and, and those kind of things have been doing Agile for generations. It was called something different. You now the Navy, they've got a concept called Maneuver Warfare. It's all about that. You know, And what, what you discover quickly, I think, the longer you've been around, is that in today's day and age, there's actually surprisingly little that is actually brand new a lot of what is kind of perceived as new or kind of tabled as new is often derived from something else.
0: Different Packaged
1: slightly differently, combined slightly differently, and we would all be better off. if we kind of spent a lot more time also acquiring knowledge and having an interest in things outside our own in particular industry. So
0: that to me is... Something important. like sleep. <laughs> yeah, I no,
1: don't underestimate the value of sleep. <laughs>
0: uh, what's, what's the author's name again? Um,
1: uh, Matthew Walker. So your yeah, fascinating Walker, book yes. on, on yes. why we sleep. And I, I guess you I mean, shed some light on that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I could embarrass myself by trying to summarise the book, but I think the essence of it as well. You know, if any any adults in particular, if, if you if you really not if you're not getting eight hours of sleep a night, you simply cannot perform optimally. That's the one dimension to it, and, there, and there's kind of empirical data and empirical evidence to suggest that is exactly the case. There, there's also data to suggest nowadays, and this is what you what you see if you read the book is that there's now not only a, a correlation between lack of sleep or poor sleep and certain lifestyle diseases, there's almost a causal effect between lack of sleep and things such as early onset dementia, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's um, loss of cognitive function, you know, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, etc. etc. Yeah. And you know, in the, in the past, you know, you, one was almost valued in an organisation if you were one of those persons who arrived here and you know, I've been working all night, I've had two, three hours sleep, and it was kind of held as a kind of a badge of bravado. Mm. Um, and I think you know now, now that we know more, I guess, and we think back in our side, it's you know the most stupid thing that's ever happened.
0: One hundred percent.
1: You know, even 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 an interesting thing is you know we spoke very briefly here about agile, but even one of the kind of the principles of the agile manifesto is a sustainable pace. Mm. You need to be able to work at a sustainable pace, and that means you know not reaching burnout, and not trying to you know get teams and people to work. 12, 13, 14, 15 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's not sustainable. 100%. And there's good scientific medical evidence to, sh- to back that up. And I think we should be taking more, paying more attention to
0: it. And it's ever, it's, it's very common, especially in the tech sort of field, where you know, you're behind your laptop and mm. you, you hit the bed at like 2 a.m. and you're up at 6 a.m. and you zombie and then there's coffee. There's two cups of coffee and then there's another third one before lunch. And then mm. before you know it now, you, got, you buzzed up on caffeine, yeah. and then we're not doing productive work. Yeah.
1: So, it's a, it's a, it, I absolutely agree with you, and then there's kind of, it's kind of it's the illusion that also the kind of coffee wakes you up and co- coffee makes you cognitively sharp, which I think is exactly that, it's just an illusion. There's an interesting stat, I think it's from the US, where more people are killed by drivers and cars micro-napping. I think it's called the terms of micro-napping, where you kind of just doze off because yeah. you're actually tired, like and are nice. killed by drunk drivers. You know, so, but we, everyone talks about don't drink and drive and this, that and the other, but you hear very little about, you know, don't get a bad night, sleep and drive. Exactly. You know, so, you know, humans are strange, I guess, despite the facts ahead of us, you know, getting rid of the legacy in the past and kind of the old things to, you know, this being a great thing to do is is difficult, so.
0: Well, I mean, if if people uh, got eight hours of sleep, they'd drink less coffee. I and mean, then all the co- the coffee industry would t- <laughs> take a dip, right? So <laughs> yeah, exactly, big farm, a
1: big coffee. There's a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Like so
0: there's there's a much there's a much larger picture to this, but maybe yeah. we can get Mike Murphy on on another episode of mm-hmm. tref Talks, and we can deep dive onto some of those um, specifics. Mike, I just got one last question for you. Or one uh, few more uh, questions. As a as a youngster uh, in the tech space, you you have or we let's just I'm gonna just. Say, we have these ideas and we want to build great things. And obviously, we we see what the likes of Airbnb and Facebook and all these large platforms out there. And you know, everyone's got ideas, they want to build this and they think that they could solve this social problem. Do you want to just talk to what's your opinion on at which point do you take, do you actually step down from, from a corporate job or? To, to pursue something like that and and because obviously there's, there's a great leap that one takes to say I'm, I'm, I'm quitting mm. a corporate job a fixed income to to follow and to build something let's just say build, build something using cloud um, to, to solve some social economic problem mm what's your what's your thoughts on yeah that? so
1: let me first start by saying that i'm on shaky ground here so i've only ever worked in a corporate okay so everything i'm going to tell you is nothing
0: but theory but but that's 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 what i want yeah,
1: I, so I, I hear I, I, you know i don't know what the answer is but i suspect it's got to do with you know so what what is your purpose What do you, what are you actually trying to achieve what do you value so if for example you value a steady income you know some sort of Quasi guarantee of kind of longish kind of term employment, and you not risk averse in this that and the other, then I think then the corporate is probably the place you would gravitate to. Gravitate mm-hmm. to, and this doesn't mean that corp- that you can't do exciting things in corporate. Yeah, and sure. you know, you know, it's it's amazing to be in corporate in many respects as well. So it's not only the big stuff. I mean, there's there's a lot of R and D, there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of smaller things that happen mm-hmm. in a corporate as well. So in some respects, you can actually get everything. Um, but having said that, there's there's obviously the, the excitement and the, I guess, the, the accomplishment that comes with kind of, you know, involving yourself in small businesses or, or, or getting a startup going and stuff. And I guess if, you, if you've got the risk profile and the risk appetite, and that's kind of really what it is you want to do, then I think everyone should do it. So I think at some point in their, in their career, you know, people who've started in a corporate should actually branch out and do something different. Mm-hmm. You know, when this is, is this in your 30s, is in your 40s, is in your 50s? I don't know. And I think... The when is very much dependent on your profile as a person, the context in which you are operating, where you're at, what it is you want to do. So I don't think there's a, there's a particularly right time or a wrong time, to be perfectly frank. I mean, there are many people who kind of left in their 50s to start up companies and been very successful. There are many who have left in their 20s. So, you know, I don't think we should be too worried about the, the when. But I think getting the experiences and is something probably everyone should do. It's a bit rich coming from me, but I've no. not done it. But yeah. you know, maybe I'll do it, you know, <laughs> when, when I'm finished with the corporate stuff. But yeah. um yeah, I think I think everyone everyone should do it to be perfectly honest. And I think too, if you look at the way that works evolving, I think in the years to come, you know, I don't know, this this is ten years or twenty years or however long the term is, is that the I think there'll be gonna be fewer and fewer permanent safety of ten year kind of corporate jobs around. I think freelancing is gonna become much of a bigger thing. I think the smaller organizations, networked organizations have become much more prevalent than what it is they maybe are today, Um, and I think the job in a large corporate may be less valued than what it is, has historically been, and maybe what it is at the moment, so this work environment is changing so quickly, so it's it's, it's pretty difficult to to tell, but on the assumption that nothing changed, I'm clear that's a flawed assumption, but on the assumption that nothing changed, and the model we have today is there, I think everyone sitting in a corporate should at some point, you know, exit and try something different.
0: And look, if it doesn't work, so what? You know, come back. Yeah. Look, yeah. Mike, the reason why I asked the question is because a lot of people trying to get into corporate are, mm. are currently struggling. And as you know, South Africa is probably all time mm. high on unemployment. So and, and one of the things that I try to aim with the podcast is to try to open up some of the opportunities to, to people out there that are that are sitting at home trying to look for a job and but you know there's you can go pay two hundred bucks for a course and get certified in, mm. in, in some AWS de- let's just call it a, a AWS developer. A course, and maybe you know you could go find some small work somewhere around just to gain some experience. And hey, do that for like maybe a year or two, and maybe you can you know you can build something. You Mm -hmm. know, so really, the the reasoning behind that question is to is to try inspire people out there that are struggling to get into corporate because obviously we are in in an uh, in an economy right now where everyone's trying to downscale, everyone's got challenges. The global economy currently is. At a at a very I wouldn't say unstable, but I would say at a very unpredictable state. So it's putting a lot of pressure on on the youth that are coming up now. And I know when I joined uh, the uh, Standard Bank Grad Program, I, you know, it was it was very daunting. And and from like a thousand applicants, you know, they take very at the end is like a small number of people that they take. So what happens to all of those other people that don't make it? So that was the reasoning behind.
1: I think the, I mean, unemployment is clearly a huge thing, and to a degree, I mean, unemployment is, is is affected by many, many things. I mean, government policies, one. I mean, is the environment in which we operate conducive to small organisations, small firms, to startups, etc. So, I think government and has, has a massive role to play in terms of kind of creating an environment that is fertile, fertile for people to kind of do things to start companies up to make it easy for them. So, I think there's, there's that element, and that's I guess largely to to an extent out of our control. But I think the one nice thing being in IT, I think it's it's one of those industries where it's actually relatively easy to acquire skills relatively quickly. And, and why do I say that? Well, first of all, everything that you could possibly need to learn is actually available online. And in many instances, it's available online for free. Mm. The, the cost of you acquiring those skills is, aside from maybe you want to having to kind of buy a computer of sorts and you, you can get those fairly cheaply, is a cost of your time. And so, as opposed to kind of sitting around waiting for a corporate to come knocking on your door, or to for you to kind of get a job at a corporate, there's a lot of things you can do you just to acquire skill. And I think in acquiring those skills, there are then opportunities to try different things. You can you can you can start up a business. The, the marginal cost of starting something and failing in in the IT world is, in most senses, kind of pretty much naught. Right. And you know, freelancing becomes an opportunity for you. You know, you don't have to have your own company. You know, there are many organisations out there looking for people just to do small things on a part-time basis. You know, and you acquire, if you can do some of that stuff, together with the knowledge you've acquired, you therefore acquire some experience, and knowledge and experience kind of gives you something. 100%. And so therefore, you know, n- later, you know, maybe small companies, larger companies become interesting, your CV becomes, you no, know, kind of interesting looking after a while, exactly. and I think that's, that's what people, in my opinion, you know, once again, you know, I'm not in that situation, mm-hmm. so I'm giving the theory, but yeah. I
0: think that's, that sounds right. Yeah, no, and, and of course, like, a lot of those people could, could continue to maybe, you know, expand their business or that enterprise into maybe, you know, start taking on much larger jobs, uh, getting yeah. larger contracts, and, uh, you know, continuing in that way, and, and they, would, they wouldn't they would have to actually join the corporate world, well, they're self-sustainable, mm-hmm. and they provide providing employment for other people as well, yep. so for every small little business you start, you know, maybe you hire five other people, hundred exponential, right. and and of course, in the tech industry, it's you know, as, as Mike just mentioned, it's, it's fairly easy to get up and running with these uh, with these technologies and small things. You know, um, we're not talking about, you know, open up your own consulting, IT consulting and now you're offering all these services. Just do one thing and do it right. One small thing, do it right. Yeah.
1: And the, the other nice thing about IT is that IT skills are borderless. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you acquire a, a BSc degree as an example, maybe that's the one extreme you just got a kind of AWS kind of certification you know and there's a whole spectrum of things in between you can go to any country in the world and what you have is accepted at face value you don't need to rewrite a certification you don't need to rewrite an exam you don't need to relearn things the languages that you learn are universal contrast that with being a medical doctor or an attorney or an architect or an engineer if you move from in our situation South Africa to Europe or to Australia or to North America you oftentimes have to retake a lot of the courses yeah. you have to rewrite you have to recertify you got to redo and it there's none of that yeah you know as long as long as you can demonstrate through kind of i guess practical application and kind of get through interviews and stuff that you can do what you need to do it's it's universal so the fluidity of the market is amazing so for people in this country who are struggling to find employment here I mean, I understand that it's difficult to if you don't have cash, you have to come kind of go somewhere else. But I mean, the opportunities are not constrained and confined by the borders of the country, you know, and that's and that's good too. So even if we lose people, oftentimes the diaspora return. <laughs> And when they return, they bring back a lot of good things with them as well. Yeah. So I think we have to be quite open-minded in terms of kind of what this looks like.
0: So yeah, we we're in a global village right now. So the little small business that you start up, servicing you know South African customers, you know in, in a few years' time could be to, could be grown, to be run from South Africa but interfaced into an international audience, and uh, that expansion is what every business would want. So yeah, on that bombshell, Mike, uh, thank you so much for for being on Trip Tech Talks. Uh, I would love to have you back on, a, on another ep- uh, episode, maybe talking about something a bit more detailed. And, uh, yeah, any last words? Yeah, no, thank you very
1: much, for about so I really enjoyed this. And, yeah, I'd yeah, love to be back here for a conversation on some different topic at some point. Yeah, but, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the
0: Matthew Walker discussion mm-hmm. deserves a bit more effort. <laughs> Thanks thank a you. lot, Mike. Thanks.